Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I suspect that you all saw the older gentleman that was over here earlier. I'm going to tell you what he said, not in order to make fun of him, but in order to show you sort of the state of religion in America. And I want you all to pray for him. I really do. I wanted him to stay here. I wanted him to stay here with us. He came through the door. So I want you to pray for him because he's very confused. 92-year-old man. His name is Ed. I didn't catch the last name quite. Said he hadn't been to church for years and years and years. But that now he is looking for a church that, number one, keeps the Ten Commandments that number two keeps the Sabbath. Now, there's a a confusing theological moment right there because I don't know why he would go on a Sunday morning into a church to find a church that keeps the Sabbath. Seems like you'd be doing that on Saturday because that would be actually keeping the Sabbath. But he was looking for a church that kept the Ten Commandments. And so I recognize that I have one brief opportunity to encapsulate the gospel to him. When he asked, do you keep the Ten Commandments? I said, the answer is yes and no. I said, we in our flesh are not capable because we're sinful. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. But Jesus fully and utterly kept the Ten Commandments And through faith in him, we keep the Ten Commandments because he is our substitute. Is that not what I said to him? Sitting right here. That was enough to cause him to say how nice everybody had been to him and he appreciated it. But that he was going to continue looking for a church. He said, thank you, pastor. You told me what I need to know. You don't keep the Sabbath. And he stood up and he walked out. So I'm serious when I say pray for him because he's 92. He himself, in talking to me, said, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. Neither do any of us. But How sad that he is facing eternity and still trying to justify himself before God by his law keeping. See, this stuff that we talk about here at GCA, about the necessity of grace, of sovereign grace, this is not a game. This is serious life and death eternal stuff. And because we all get together in a room and we are all in agreement and we all have a theological underpinning 
that girds up our faith in Christ as our substitute and thereby we expect that God will be gracious to us not because of what we did but because of what Christ did therefore we can have hope and we can run boldly to the throne of grace crying Abba Father that to us united becomes the theology that we stand on and that we're ready to cast ourselves out into eternity on this poor man doesn't have that hope in his desperation he's hoping that he has though he hasn't been to church for a while he said but I keep the Sabbath I did say to him you do know that that's Saturday right and he said yes I keep the Sabbath and I'm looking for a church that will keep the Sabbath and keep the Ten Commandments I fear for him if that's how he's leaving this world pray for Ed all right even if we never see him again he crossed our paths and that was not an accident God brought him across our path and for that moment he heard the truth he heard the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ and that could be the whole reason he walked through the door so now you know what that conversation was about two weeks ago before I was so rudely interrupted by having my face rearranged we were talking about ancient Jewish weddings and the relationship between Christianity and ancient Hebrew weddings. And even though I am not typically a beautiful guy, one of the comments that I heard most frequently after that message was how reassuring and truly beautiful that language that is here in the Bible actually is. And it is beautiful language, and I think we, 21st century Gentiles, we oftentimes miss the beauty of that language because we don't know. That's not our tradition. That's not our background. That's not our history. So we can be reading through the Bible, and Jesus will say things that are very wedding-based, and we'll miss it. We'll just read right by it. For instance... Theologians have argued for years and years about Jesus saying, in answering, when are you going to return? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And he said, of that day and of that hour knows no man, but my father only. And so theologians argue about it. Well, then how can Jesus, if he is God, how could he not know something? After all, he would be omniscient. How could he admit to not knowing something? Atheists love to pounce on that verse and say see Jesus himself just admitted that he is not God because he admitted that he didn't know something and then theologians will say well that was part of his humanity that in his humanity he didn't know it but in his divinity he still would have known it but he somehow set aside that part of his divinity and his humanity to theological wrangling to try to explain it when in fact all Jesus was doing was using the language of the bridegroom 
and his audience who heard him say it would have recognized instantly that he was saying that within the context of a Jewish wedding that when the wife would ask how long will you be gone he would say it's not up to me I don't know my servant doesn't know my father alone knows because it's the father who would send the bridegroom to come back and get his bride so rather than wrangling about the theology of it and the ontology of it and how much divinity was involved in it and how much humanity was involved in it none of that is what Jesus was demonstrating what Jesus was demonstrating was that his relationship with his church continues to be described in that marriage wedding melu and if you don't understand it that way then you're going to get all theologically confounded there are big books big tomes big articles you can find on the internet arguing about that verse and they won't mention that it just happens to be because Jesus was being the bridegroom so the more that we understand the wedding language the more we can understand our relationship to Christ his relationship to us and the promises that he has made us we talked a couple of weeks ago about the rapture of the church the catching away of the church that is guaranteed all the more when you understand the wedding language and you're going to see it again this morning now a couple of weeks ago I showed you that the rapture of the church has to occur before the tribulation period this morning I'm going to show you that the tribulation and the rapture all have to happen before the millennium and that is why we are premillennial pre-tribulational and why I say I am a pre-everythingist ancient Jewish wedding customs there are three parts of a Jewish wedding it begins with the shidduchin which is that time of mutual commitment and we talked about the arrangements the agreements the signing of the kerubah which is the marriage contract this week I heard that pronounced as ketubah and so I may be wrong it may be ketubah instead of kerubah anybody who is well versed in ancient Hebrew pronunciation I'm willing to learn the kerubah is a marriage contract that protected importantly and don't miss this it protected the rights of the bride and so the contract the covenant that we have entered into with Christ is a guarantee to us he is fully secure he's the son of God he's sitting at the right hand of God right now he is one-third of the Trinity he is secure it's we here on this planet we wandering as pilgrims here on this planet where we don't belong we're the ones who need reassurance we're the ones who need promises we're the ones who need to know that the one who has betrothed us has actually promised to come get us and that none of his promises are going to fail because they are based on the unchanging faithful nature of a God who absolutely cannot change and that will give you a great deal of hope and confidence which is exactly what you need in order to persevere through this lifetime and through the trials and troubles of well being you while you're here on the planet 
knowing all the while that your relationship with your bridegroom cannot be changed or altered, cannot be severed, cannot be done away with because he is faithful and he is going to come get you and he has made guarantees for you based on himself. Really good news. If he was basing his promises to you based on you, well, good luck to you. Marilyn actually went, oh, gee. (laughs) No, if it's based on you, you have no hope. If it's based on him, you have nothing but hope. And that's what the marriage contract is all about. And then there was a ceremonial washing for the bride called a mikvah. That mikvah, that ceremonial washing is what we undergo when we are baptized. Christ, our bridegroom, was baptized first while he was here on the planet. He was baptized by John the Baptist, and even John the Baptist asked, Why? Why do you come to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. And yet Jesus said, Let's do it anyway to fulfill all righteousness, because he was being ceremonially mikvahed as our bridegroom. And then he said that we, in faith in him, should also be baptized. So then... There is what is known as the groom's promise. Once the two betrothed people, the husband-to-be and the wife-to-be, once they see each other, the groom pays what is called a bride price, a mohar. It's the same thing that we men do when we are engaged to a woman. We give her a ring. It is a promise. It is a payment in order to say, I'm going to provide for you. And so Paul would write, 1 Corinthians 6.20, that you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Not only did Christ pay the sin price for the penalty of sin that was due to you, but he also gave you the down payment of his Holy Spirit, his servant, who acts as a protector and a governor over you while you're wandering through this life. He doesn't leave you on your own, but he also has made that down payment, that guarantee that everything else that he has promised you is absolutely true. That is why the writer of Hebrews, when talking about faith, would say that faith is the down payment. It is the substance of things hoped for. It is the down payment of all those things that we have been promised by God because our husband has made us promises, has made us guarantees. The one who took us to be his bride has also given us the groom's promise. And then the groom goes away. In the old days, he would go away for up to two years. For us, he's been gone for 2,000 years. But he goes away and the bride says, don't go. And he says, it's better for you if I go and come back. He goes and prepares a place for his bride to live. He makes that place in his father's house. He builds an extension on his father's house so that he and his bride can live there. Jesus, before he left the planet, said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. And so he went, and he's coming back to get us. Part of the guarantee that he's coming back to get us is the fact that he is left for the express purpose of building a place for us. He wouldn't, for the last 2,000 years, have been building a place for his bride and then fail to come get his bride. We know for a fact that he's coming to get us, and he is right now preparing a place for us. Where? In his father's house. That is just beautiful. That's just wonderful to think about, that he who belongs in his father's house because he is the son. He is the heir of everything the father has. He deserves to be in the father's house. I don't deserve to be in the father's house. None of you deserve to be in the father's house, but you're going to be because he, as your bridegroom, has given you the guarantee, the promise, the down payment. He's made the contract. He has formed the covenant and then he is left to prepare the place for you with the sure guarantee that he's going to return to come and get you and take you to the place that he has prepared for you in his father's house. That's why we have confidence. That's why we have hope. <coughs> I am jealous over you, says the apostle Paul. I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy for I have espoused you. The word is, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So in explaining the relationship between Christ and his church, Paul even picked up that marriage language. He picked up that wedding language in order to say that we are betrothed, we are espoused to one husband. By the way, once a woman was betrothed to a groom she could not be courted by anybody else nor could she spend time with any other man go ahead and draw the connection because once you are betrothed which is the language Paul used here on purpose once you are promised to once you are betrothed to one man Christ nobody else gets you and you're not supposed to be messing around with anybody else. You're not supposed to be dipping your toe in other religions. You're not supposed to be following any other leader. You're not supposed to have any other teacher. There is no other instructor. There is no other theology. There is no other book. There is no other scripture. There is no other teaching that you're supposed to be following because you are betrothed to Christ and Christ alone. And therefore, you are supposed to keep yourself as a chaste virgin only unto him until he comes back to get you. That's the reason that that language was part of the marriage contract. And then Paul picked it up and moved it into the church. Then there was a time, this is what we're talking about, this betrothal period, this Esuin where we are guaranteed that he is going to provide everything that we need. Not only is he going to take care of our needs during the time that he's away, but he's also going to send his servant to watch over us and to encourage us to remain in our chastity to our bridegroom. The connections there are obvious. The Holy Spirit is that servant 
who has come to act as a governor, as a servant to watch over us, to keep us pure, to keep us separated, to keep us looking forward to the day that the bridegroom is going to come. And then we are instructed to watch, always be ready. And we ended two weeks ago by looking at the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. And the wise virgins were watching because they didn't know what hour of the night the bridegroom was going to come. And Jesus kept using that language, watch, because you don't know when the Son of Man is going to return. So we are supposed to be diligent. We are supposed to be constantly aware, on guard, aware that at any moment he could arrive. We're not supposed to say, well, his coming is delayed. It's been a long time. He's probably not going to come today or tomorrow or next week. And so I can go ahead and mess around with the things of the world because I've got time to clean myself up before he comes back. Instead, the instruction is you watch every day, every day. And the language of the bridegroom returning in the middle of the night is because that is designating a time when you think not. I mean, if he came at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, of course you're going to be awake and watching. But if he comes at midnight, that's going to be the time when you don't expect him. And Jesus created that situation on purpose in order to say, watch constantly. Don't ever let down your guard. Don't ever assume that you can just mess with this world for a little while and then clean it up later. Always be watching because your bridegroom is coming and you have the Holy Spirit of God acting, working as a governor, a servant of his, watching over you, protecting you, guiding you, and encouraging you to watch. So then the bridegroom comes. And then the groomsmen run out ahead of the bridegroom. And the groomsmen run out with a trumpet and with a shout. And I showed you the correlation between that event and the language that Paul uses when describing the return of Christ. It's the same language Jesus himself uses. That the Son of Man is going to return on clouds of glory with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. And with a shout. Now all of that language is much more than simply eschatological. That is also marriage language. That is the language that says, behold, the bridegroom's coming. And then the bride runs out to meet him. And then we are joined to him in marriage. And today what we're going to talk about is the marriage ceremony. I think that catches us up. The third stage of ancient Jewish weddings is something called the Nisuin, and that is the actual marriage. It's the final step in a Jewish wedding tradition. That word, by the way, comes from the word naso, which means to lift up and carry off. It's one of the reasons that traditionally grooms still pick up their bride to carry her across the threshold into their new home. Because the tradition is, dating all the way back to ancient Jewish weddings, that the groom comes and picks up, lifts up his bride, and then carries her off. By the way, if that sounds like rapture language, 
It's meant to because our groom is coming to lift us up and carry us off. There's no mistake there. By the way, that idea of, of being lifted up carries on today in Jewish weddings. I don't know how many of you have ever attended Jewish weddings or if you've seen them on Facebook or YouTube or anything. But part of that tradition is that they put the bride and groom in a chair and then they pick them up. Now the groom, and this is important, wears something that is a traditional wedding robe. It's called a kittel. And this kittel or kittel, however it's pronounced, is a white linen robe. Looks sort of like a bathrobe. And the word kittel comes from the Hebrew word katal, which actually means to slay, because it was the robe that the high priest would wear when he was making sacrifices at high days, like Yom Kippur or like Passover. He would put on that robe when he was there to sacrifice the animals. So it is a robe of sacrifice. And he would wear this kittel, because not only is it a robe of sacrifice, but it is a robe of ceremonial cleansing. Cleansing through sacrifice. If that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus himself told a parable about a wedding feast and the necessity for people to have the right robes. And then he explains what the robes are. Turn to Matthew 22. We're going to read the first 22 verses. Matthew 22, starting right at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, what's the purpose of a parable? Why did Jesus talk in parables? The purpose of a parable is to explain something that you can't possibly understand by comparing it to something that you can comprehend. And so here is Jesus explaining the kingdom of heaven, which we human beings, we're not going to grasp that. But he knows that everybody's familiar with weddings and wedding feasts, so he compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And not just any old wedding feast, but the wedding feast that's being thrown by a king. Now everybody's getting some sense of it. Also, the reason that he spoke in parables was oftentimes to hide meaning from people so that people with ears to hear and eyes to see, they would get it, they would understand it, they'd comprehend it, but people who weren't given that spiritual ability would hear it and not understand it. And so oftentimes Jesus cloaked great eternal truths in parables. And that was his explanation for why he spoke in parables. So in this parable, he compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast given by a king for his son. Pretty obvious comparisons there. And first he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, 
and they were unwilling to come. Okay, now remember who his audience is. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. So who, if God is the king, and if Jesus is his son, and the father is going to throw a wedding feast for his son, and he's out there beckoning people, who then are the first people who would have been called who refused to come? The religious leaders, the Jews, of course they'd be the first to be called. This is their Messiah. This is the one who's been promised ever since King David. This is the one that, this is the one that they've been waiting for, the desire of women. So he's finally here, and he's rejected by his own. He came to his own, and his own received him not. So here he is looking them in the eye and telling them a parable in which he is condemning them for their lack of coming to him and so they are not going to have any part in his wedding feast. But he's cloaking it in a parable so that they don't quite see it. They don't quite get it. And he's condemning them as he's saying it to them. He sent out his slaves, his servants, to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. So again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. What is Jesus referring to there? He's referring to the fact that God had for 1400 years been sending prophets to the nation of Israel. And those prophets all spoke of Jesus. They all pointed forward to Christ. Servant after servant they came and then one by one they were all killed. By the Jewish leaders. That's why Jesus himself would say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Therefore, your house is left desolate. Okay, well. Jesus in this parable has just described the entire history of God's dealings with Israel and Israel's response. And now Jesus is going to explain why it is that God turned to others. The people that the Jewish leaders would have rejected and would have thought as unsavable tax collectors and, and half-breeds and Gentiles and, you know, the dregs of the earth, like you and me. I didn't mean to look right at you when I said... Bullseye. Bullseye. Okay, the king was enraged. God is angry at those who have rejected his son, who have killed his prophets. And he sent his armies and he destroyed those murderers and he set their city on fire. By the way, that happened 70 AD. We have been reading the last couple of weeks on Wednesday nights in our study of Isaiah that God takes credit for the fact 
that he brought the Assyrians down on the northern tribes. And he takes credit for the fact that he brought the Chaldeans, those of Babylon, down on the southern tribes. And he is amassing his army in order to be the battle axe in his hands, in order to correct his people. Jesus uses the same language here. He sent his armies, not just random armies, his armies. Then they destroyed the murderers and they set the city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So those servants went out into the streets and they gathered together all that they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. That, my friends, is us. We're not there because we deserve to be. We went there because we weren't the originally invited. We go there because the originally invited turned on the sun and therefore like Paul said, to the Jews, since you were unwilling to listen, I go to the Gentiles. It's exactly what Jesus is describing here long before Paul's ministry even began. That God then would send out servants to go into the highways and the byways and whoever they would come across, they would beckon them, they would invite them to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that's what we're still doing here. That's what the church is still about. This is what GCA exists for. We're still beckoning men and women, boys and girls, come to the feast. And people don't hear it. People won't come. But every once in a while, people do. Every once in a while, people hear the truth of the gospel and the lights go on and everybody's home and they can't wait to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is exactly what Jesus said 2,000 years ago was going to be the continuing effort of the servants of God that they were going to continue to beckon people to come to the feast because the feast is prepared. God has already made the preparations. Now he's just bringing the people. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Okay, now I just described to you what these wedding clothes are. The wedding clothes are these robes, these robes of linen that were provided by the host of the wedding. He was responsible for giving everybody robes to put on during the wedding feast. And if you were at the feast and didn't have a robe, that meant that you weren't somebody who the father had actually invited in. You snuck in some other way. You came in late. You didn't come through the front gate. You snuck in looking for a free... You're a wedding crasher. You came in looking for a free meal and some free wine. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At that moment, Jesus leapt past just a wedding and makes it about God, makes it clear that he's talking about eternal consequences. 
you are either invited to the wedding feast where you are given by the father a robe of righteousness where you are covered in righteousness by the father and if you think you're going to sneak in any other way by your own righteousness, if you're going to get there by your own justification, if you think you're going to sneak in by your own goodness and your own commandment keeping, then he says you're going to be cast out, bind him hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness. In that place there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because many are called. Okay, we see that. We saw that many were called. Lots of people were called. The original guests were called. They didn't come. People were called in the highways and the byways. Not everybody came. Many are called, but the ones who end up with the robes are the chosen. Many are called, few are chosen. Jesus put that phrase on the end of that story so that we would understand what that parable is all about. And once again, we see Jesus explaining the kingdom of God and the eternal consequences of coming to Christ. And he uses wedding language to explain it. So that's the importance of that robe that the groom would wear and that the guests would wear. That robe is symbolic of righteousness that comes only from the Father. So at this point, the bride and groom are together. They're getting married. They're going through their nuptials. Now, there was one more tradition that still remains to this very day. In a traditional Jewish wedding, how many of you have seen uh, Fiddler on the Roof? That might be as close to a Jewish wedding as several of you have gotten but you've seen it at the end of the wedding. Do you remember they broke a glass? Mm -hmm. What they would do is they would take a glass and wrap it in a handkerchief, basically. And then the bride and groom would step on it and break the glass. And that is traditionally supposed to show the fragility of life. Even in these most joyous of celebrations, life is still fragile. So the Jews will break a glass as a symbol of their broken past and their new life together. Forgiveness is the end of their shattered past. And as the groom smashes the glass, everybody shouts, Mazel Tov, which means good fortune. So you're wishing them good fortune. May your lives here from here on out, not be shattered like this glass, but may it be full of fortune and joy. So the breaking of the glass is the end of a broken past. And at the beginning of their life together, there is this shout of great fortune. I think I can draw the connections pretty easily. Because we come to Christ with all our shattered past. And then that's finished. That's over with. And what we hear is, Good fortune in the future once we are joined to our husband. Mighty good fortune, I mean really good fortune, is ours once we are joined to our husband. So at that point in the celebrating, she will go with her husband and they're going to go complete the nuptials in the hoopah. Remember I talked last week about the hoopah. It's a, a tent, a covering. And the bride and groom enter into the bridal chamber where the marriage is consummated. There, I think I've circumlocuted that adequately. And the wedding party, this is really important, the wedding party 
waits outside until the groom tells the best man that it has indeed been consummated. And then the guests rejoice for seven straight days. That's how to throw a wedding party. Seven straight days of celebrating. Now watch this. Even that little detail isn't just arbitrary. I showed you a couple weeks ago. I showed it to you exegetically that the rapture of the church, the gathering of the church by the bridegroom happens before the tribulation period. And the next thing you read about us which we're going to read this morning before the morning's over, the next thing you read about us is that we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which apparently takes place for the period of the tribulation. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. years. So during the seven-year tribulation, we're partying up in heaven while all hell is breaking loose down here on the planet. So the seven-day celebration of the wedding feast is not an arbitrary number. It is prefiguring our seven years together with our husband. At the end of that seven years, he comes back with us riding on white horses. And guess what we're wearing? White robes, which is the righteousness of the saints. Where'd we get those? At At the wedding feast. We're still dressed for the wedding feast. It's beautiful language. And all of that is in the Bible, not by mistake, but because God is continuing to explain our security in our husband and what we can look forward to. So these eschatological things that we talk about when I throw around language like premillennial, pre-tribulational, it's a whole lot more than just theological ideas. It is also essential to the wedding Feast and the wedding ceremony and the wedding betrothal and the wedding contract, all of that is intimately involved in the eschatology that we believe. And let me just add parenthetically that if you believe in any other eschatology, let's say that you are adhering to an amillennial view or your postmillennial or any of those views, at some point you destroy all that very specific wedding language that the Bible uses. It is only if you are pre-everythingist that you don't do any damage to the wedding language that the Bible uses to describe our relationship to our Christ and his return as our husband to come and get us and take us to the wedding feast. So our eschatology is not just convenient or hopeful. It is essential to what the Bible explains in terms of ancient wedding feasts and their relationship between the church and Christ. You see that? People say to me sometimes, you know, Jim, you're reformed. And I go, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're a sovereign grace preacher, and we love it when you preach that grace stuff. You're good at that. We like that. But why do you have to be premillennial? Because most Reformed people are covenantal amillennial. And so they say, you know, we'd really like you if you just drop that premill stuff. I have so many Reformed amillennial friends 
who keep saying you know we're going to convert you we're going to change you and the reason that they can't convert me or change me is because of everything I've been telling you for the last couple of weeks these are not just arbitrarily held eschatological positions they are essential to understanding what the Bible lays out for us in terms of our security in Christ and our guarantee of the wedding feast to come that takes us to the marriage supper of the lamb when our joy do you remember the word you learned two weeks ago for joy I taught you a Hebrew word a couple weeks ago simcha I said learn this word simcha memorize this word simcha it's just a it's just a great word it means joy the wedding feast is all about joy now by the way God's definition of what marriage is is that marriage is permanent and and I would think that Marilyn would agree she's been married 62 years to Conrad that's something I mean that's wedding permanence right there but when God talks about wedding permanence he doesn't mean 62 years he means eternity and so in his absolute perfection when he betrothed you and ultimately will marry you to his son that is a permanent relationship that is a permanent joining of the two of you because we're sinners this is part of the demonstration of how sinful we are that we have corrupted this idea of the permanence of marriage sadly human relationships come apart but God's relationships never come apart and since we're going to have eternal life our marriage covenant lasts forever and then the new couple goes home to their father's house to begin their married life together and that is what we are promised so we too are going to go to our father's house and we're going to live together forever with the Lord our husband our beloved so once that's all understood the parallels between the ancient Jewish wedding and the biblical feasts with God's plan of redemption for humankind represented by the marriage of the church as a bride and Jesus as the bridegroom all of that helps facilitate a deeper understanding not only of Christianity but also of what marriage is meant to be it's a union between one man and one woman it's a covenant it's a betrothal and the gospel as a result has a much much deeper meaning to us once we understand the depth and the importance of ancient Jewish weddings turn to Revelation 19 now I'm gonna to have to get technical on you a little bit we're going to read chapter 19 and into the beginning of chapter 20 I said to you that I'm going to show you exegetically this morning why I am also premillennial on top of being pre-tribulational there is a textual methodology that John is utilizing through these two chapters that I don't want you to miss 
this Greek word, that little word, K-A-I, in English letters is the word chi, translated and. It does the same thing in the Greek language that it does in the English language. It joins things. And so if I were to say to you, if I was to give you a series of instructions, and I said, Shane, stand up and walk to the door and walk to the parking lot and go start your car and drive around the building twice and do some donuts out front and expect us to come out and tar and feather you for it. That creates sequence. He can't do the donuts until he's driven around the, the building a couple times. And he can't drive around the building until he's started the car. And he can't start the car until he's walked out to the parking lot. And he can't walk out into the parking lot until he stands up and goes out the door. There is sequence to that. That is exactly the way that John utilizes and. Oftentimes, kai hutas forms of that, not just and, but and then, and then, and then, because he is forming Sequence. Now, there are no chapter or verse divisions in John's original letter. The chapter and verse divisions have only been around for about 500 years. So, the original recipients of this letter would have read it not only as one continuous letter, but they would have understood everything in chapter 19 and chapter 20 as sequential. Because John very specifically uses, and then, and then, and then, and then. So he's laying out a sequence of events that take place. And our minds are interrupted by the big 20. And we think, oh, that's the beginning of a new chapter. It's not. That is a completely arbitrary division. In John's writing, he simply wrote, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. And he did not suddenly write 20, 20 verse 1, 20 verse 2. Instead, he was writing a sequence of events. You got it? Yeah. Chapter 19, verse 1. Listen to how often you're going to hear and, and, and then, and then, and, because John is writing sequences. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. And he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, 
and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head there are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, 
so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the world, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were all judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no longer any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right. For these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. 
I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Okay, I told you I was going to read 19 and 20, and I read a little ways into chapter 21 just because it got good to me. I just wanted you to see the consistency of and, 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 that sequence. The argument for premillennialism that is most difficult for amillennialists or postmillennialists to deal with is the fact that chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. But also language. If you understand the way the Greek language works and the use of the word chi and how specifically and purposefully John was using it to create sequence, then that means in chapter 19, starting at verse 7, we are rejoicing and we're glad and we're giving glory to God because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. That happens at the beginning of chapter 19. The thousand years doesn't happen until until chapter 20. That means the marriage supper of the Lamb happens before the millennium happens. After the marriage supper of the Lamb, you've got the coming of Christ on a white horse, meeting out the judgment and wrath of God, and those who are at the marriage supper of, of the Lamb come back riding white horses with our captain, with our savior, with our bridegroom, still wearing the clothing that we were given at the marriage supper of the lamb. That has to be sequential because we can't be wearing the clothing if we haven't been to the wedding. And Jesus in his parable already pointed that out. If you don't have the wedding clothing, he's going to cast you into outer darkness. So the very fact that you're wearing the wedding clothing means that he gave it to you at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is before the wrath of God is poured out. And then comes the thousand years. That, my friends, is premillennial, pre-tribulational expectation that our bridegroom is going to come lift us up and carry us off And so will we ever be with the Lord. That's Bible. Let me read you something. I quoted a piece of this to you two weeks ago. Oh, I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. He brings this poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. Not even where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. For the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.